All right, good morning. We now have some fresh powder for skiing. And so now, if any of you, uh, after hearing how exciting it is to ski with Blake, would like to go with him today in some remote, out-of-bounds, whatever, there'll be a little powder on those, so no problem. Daniel, are you up for that today? What... Uh, you know, I asked, I asked Jay the other day, I said, what, did, you, uh, did you ski with Blake? Yeah, it was great. We found this great run. He said, the only thing was that we had to hike to it, and it took 30 minutes. Boy, that sounded like a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, I'll be right there. Uh, so with that, we will, I'm going to turn it over to Rod Miller, who's going to introduce our speaker today. Well, it's my privilege to uh, introduce uh, Craig Smith. He is uh, uh, the pastor of... Uh, uh, the Vale Church on Highway 6. I'm sure uh, you, uh, if you've driven down Highway 6 going to the east, you've passed it. It's on the left-hand side. And uh, uh, Craig has been our pastor uh, for the last eight years. Uh, he, uh, 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 he's made a big difference in our uh, community here. He uh, uh, has outreach programs to uh, the... Uh, uh, minority groups that we have here in the valley. Uh, we just have a, a lot of great uh, ministries that uh, I give uh, Craig the, the credit for uh, uh, starting and, uh, and then following through on each one of them. Uh, Craig has three daughters and, uh, and a wife, and so he, uh, he, uh, he has a very uh, sensitive household. He tells us on, about this uh, Pretty regularly, that uh, when you when you got four women in the uh, in the house, you you you've got a very sensitive house, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I, I is this handout uh, something that you're going to preach from, Craig? Okay, good. Well, every uh, every Sunday when we go uh, to church, we've got a handout, and there's blanks there that we fill in. And uh, Olivia says that it's for us type A people that have to be doing something and writing in and, and following along. So he brings a great message uh, every Sunday morning. And the thing that I appreciate that he does is uh, uh, every Sunday you're going to hear about Jesus. And so with that, Craig. That was very, very... I have a female dog, too, just to add on top of it. Hey, I'm encouraged this morning, first of all, because there's fresh powder out there. And if this were a Sunday at the Vale Church, uh, it's paid staff and the injured only. That's all it is. There's, uh, there's no one that's at church. So thanks for being here. I know you're here because you paid for it, and that's good. Uh, but it's a great honor to be able to join you another year at High Ground and uh, to share from Scripture today. And initially, I had an original message that I had mapped out last week. I was out of town in Arizona, and so I carved that out for us. And then uh, as the conference has kind of continued to unfold, uh, there just emerged to me kind of a, a theme that's percolating up as you hear these wonderful speakers. And there's been this kind of high drive charge to the hoop, really, on high challenge discipleship calls. And so yesterday morning, I just kind of felt the Lord maybe uh, asking me to, to pull a Peyton Manning and call an audible at the line. And so as Doug was speaking, really, I just thought I heard, uh, you know, uh, Omaha, Omaha. And so anyhow, I went home and uh, and I changed things up, and so I hope it goes okay today. And let me just give you a brief context as to my world as a pastor here 
uh, serving in the Vale Valley. Some of you might know that the valley is called Happy Valley, and that's kind of how the, the visiting world knows Vale. It's Happy Valley. But if you talk to anyone who lives here, serves here, works here, ministers here, uh, they'll tell you that there's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of pain, and there's also a lot of spiritual lostness in this valley. And so especially among the locals, and that's often seen in our churches. And so talk to pastors, they'll tell you that. In fact, if you go to our church on any given Sunday, you can pick out a row, and uh, the lineup might go something like this in our church. You might have a pink-haired, tattooed hippie sitting next to a well-educated, skeptic, agnostic type, sitting next to a young working-class couple who's fairly new in their Christian faith, sitting next to a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, sitting next to uh, just a a God-fearing, Christ-centered, ministry-minded, doctrinally sound couple who's going for it, sitting next to a transgender who's now a female, who's sitting next to a homosexual couple, who's sitting next to a visiting professor from Dallas Theological Seminary. That's our church. It's a wide divide of which, if you were to ask some of those folks, you know, in that row of their opinion of Jesus on any given Sunday at this particular point in their life and their journey, the agnostic might tell you Jesus is a moral teacher. He maybe was a political revolutionary. That might be his position. The hippie's going to tell you, no, I think Jesus was a gentle soul. He, He wore lavender pants and he had a flower in his hair and he drank chai lattes and, you know, I think he owned a medical marijuana store in Bethlehem. So that's what they do. And uh, so we get to deal with a lot of diversity in our church, and because we're a smaller context in the valley, we know these people, we see these people, we get to do life with these people, and uh, that can make you uncomfortable at times, really. And the good news is, is that we have the wonderful honor of sharing the gospel every week and pointing these people to Jesus week in and week out, but there are times when it can make a fellow feel very uncomfortable, like you're the stranger in your own church. And so how do you feel when you're around strangers? Well, sometimes it makes you a little uneasy, doesn't it? We had a good taste of this uh, this idea of strangers. Last Thanksgiving, uh, my oldest daughter had a soccer tournament over Thanksgiving in Las Vegas. And so here it is, pastor and his wife and and three daughters heading off to the city of sin for a little holiday fun. And uh, we did what everyone else does. We walked the strips, you know, each day and kicked around. And to be honest, I was just a constant watchdog. I could not... I just could not do anything but make sure no weird strangers are going to touch my girls as we're navigating the mass of humanity that's walking the strip. And so, as you might know, if you've been to Vegas, there are a lot of, quote, strangers there. And this is kind of the idea that I want you to think about this morning by way of some work in Scripture. And so, last year, I had the honor of walking us through the parable of the shrewd manager, which is a blast because no one understands what the heck it means. Jesus trumped all of us. And uh, anyhow, they gave me the invite to speak again. I figured I better stick uh, with another parable. So here we go. Uh, And this one's told by Jesus in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And it's the brilliant, well-known story of the Good Samaritan. And here's what I found about those who tend to teach the, the, the parable. They often elevate some of the details that really aren't the main point. And they miss the big, big, big idea of what Jesus is dealing with and doing in the life of a particular expert in the law. And so that's where we're going to be. You've got a handout there. But if you want to understand this story, you've got to hop into first century context and you've got to let this story filter through your ears from a Jewish perspective. Otherwise, you're not really going to get the main point of the story. And so Jesus is telling a Jewish audience the story of the Good Samaritan. And you're going to see that there's really two primary players in this narrative and the broader story that Luke is telling. The first involves a lawyer. I wish Kelly were here. He'd probably get a kick out of this. He's going to be the Old Testament expert in the law. And so this man held a very conservative view of all that God required of his people. So you might want to think of him as kind of the, he's the spiritual Rush Limbaugh of Jewish society. That's who he was. He believed the Old Testament law to be the very word of God. And so most likely we're talking about a Pharisee. 
And as such, she was one who held a very significant role in copying, interpreting the Old Testament uh, with just great, great detail. So he's the Old Testament Bible answer man. So you've got a lawyer, and he's seen among the crowd as being the spiritual conservative. That's who he is. And then you're going to have a second character in the story, and that's Jesus. And believe it or not, he's being viewed by some as the spiritual liberal. Can you imagine? Jesus the liberal. But to the teachers of the law... And to the religious elite, this is how they viewed Jesus. You might say, well, why? Well, he's saying things in the name of God that no one says. And he's doing things in the name of God that no one does. And he's claiming things as God that no one's ever claimed. And so that might make a few folks uncomfortable. Imagine if I showed up this morning and I said to you, you know your scriptures. I said, you've heard it said in scripture, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. But I tell you a new thing today, sell all of your stuff and give it to me. You might think, huh, that's new. (laughs) That sounds a little liberal. And so you can see how the cultural spiritual conservatives views Jesus as this kind of liberal rabbi, and he's been teaching and interpreting Old Testament uh, in a very unique way. And so that brings you to Luke chapter 10. You're going to see the conservative experts going to square off with Jesus the liberal, supposedly, and it begins with a test in verse 25. Luke writes, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the lawyer stands up in the presence of Christ and others, and he asks him a question, and it's not because he doesn't know the answer. He's not an uninformed guy. It's because he wants to test Jesus, and what he wants to know is, is this rabbi, this teacher, orthodox? Is he conservative? Is he someone we should listen to, or is he liberal as I think he is? So he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And friends, yes, long before the Reformation, that was a common question. And what he's asking is, what must a person do to live in the very presence of God eternally? That's a pretty important question. This is not an optional concern. The expert in the law wants to know about the very foundation of what it means to know God and to experience salvation. Now, Jesus is supposed to do what when he's asked a question? He's supposed to give an answer. So look at what he does next, verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? So instead of answering the question, Jesus asks one of his own, and in doing so, just so you understand rabbi culture, he's breaking every protocol in communication. It's highly offensive, actually. And so you imagine maybe the expert of the law, the lawyer's a little miffed at this point. You don't answer a question with a question, but Jesus says, what does the law say about eternal life? After all, you're the expert. You're the Alex Trebek, so how do you read it? And the lawyer gives his answer in verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer answers with the great commandment, driven by Deuteronomy 6.5. That was the core confession of the people of God. And then they they were to love God only. And then Leviticus 19.18, you're to love your neighbor These are not two separate commands. They're really just two expressions of one command. And so to love God includes loving your neighbor and vice versa. So all you have to do to inherit eternal life is consistently love God with the entirety of your being and love other people above yourself. That's all you have to do. So Jesus is now going to turn the table on the lawyer's head in his answer, and he's going to set up a little dilemma. So he responds to the lawyer, and he says, You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, Do this and you'll live. So everything's good. Should be the end of the conversation. 
But there's a problem now. Because the lawyer who's trying to trick Jesus without really realizing what's happening just got tricked himself. And Jesus just created a dilemma for this expert in the law because the lawyer's caught. If he answers in front of his Jewish friends in that crowd that day and he says, I've done that, everyone who knows him and listening to him says, that's not true. But if he says, I haven't done that, then he's admitting he doesn't have eternal life. So he's on the spot. He's on in what, uh, what theologians call deep dialogical doo-doo. He's in deep trouble. <laughs> because either answer brings him discredit, and he's going to lose personal honor. So what he needs is he needs some detail from the law that he can grab hold of to justify himself and thus go on forward in his community with honor and dignity. So here's what he comes up with in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, like the first question asked by the lawyer, this question was also common. And the answer in first century Palestine, certainly to a Pharisee, was this. If you're Jewish, you're a neighbor. And if you're not Jewish, you're not a neighbor. And if you're not a neighbor, you're not obligated to love that person. So the lawyer's hoping this would be his out, his excuse from having to love everyone. And the Pharisee believes only a Jew is a, is a neighbor. So he poses the question to Jesus to see how he's going to answer. And Jesus is Jewish. So the expert of the law, how do you think he expects Jesus to answer and respond? You would think that he's going to agree with this lawyer. But instead, Jesus offers the parable. In verse 30, he's going to teach an earthly story with a heavenly meaning to get to the heart of the matter in the heart of this particular lawyer. So the story begins in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. So Jesus begins this great story. It involves a man who's making the journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And Jesus was very familiar with that road. It had a very, very dangerous history. In fact, in his day, it was called the way of blood because of so many ambushes by criminals and robbers and the blood spilt on this road. And if you see it in its actual terrain, it's a winding, meandering road, very conducive for ambush. So there's a man walking the road alone, and what's fascinating with Jesus is he uses the most generic term there is for the word man. And here's where the details become very important to the lawyer. Is the man naked? Likely not. Is he dead? Likely not. It's actually true. The rabbis of Jesus' day had five stages of dying identified. They had 400 years to work this out, and so they clarified it pretty well. And I'll just condense it to three. There's the preparing to die stage, the almost half-dead stage, and then the fully dead stage, of which you will experience all three in your life, by the way, and you're welcome for that. So Jesus says of this man, he's what? Half-dead. He's unconscious. You say, why are the details so important? Well, they're important because they might help the lawyer determine if this man is a neighbor, i.e. Jewish. For example, if Jesus mentions the kind of clothes this man's wearing, perhaps he can determine, is he Jewish, is he Roman, because Jews dress differently than the Romans did. Be like, if you're at the DIA, Denver Airport, you saw a guy wearing tight-pressed Wrangler jeans, pointy boots, starched white shirt, mother-of-pearl buttons, 10-gallon hat. He's from where? Providence, Rhode Island. You're right. So here's the guy in the story, and the beauty of Jesus' wisdom is that no one can tell if he's a neighbor. They don't know. It's a great story. 
So listen to what happens next in the story. Jesus continues, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So a priest now passes by the man who was beaten and left for dead. Why would a priest be going down from Jerusalem? Well, he's coming down from doing his priestly duty in the temple, which means he has to be ceremonially clean, right? So he passes by the stranger. He walks on the other side. According to oral law, he's got to stay four cubits away from this man or else he loses his ritual purity. Next comes a Jewish Levite. What does he do? Same thing, passes by on the other side. Now, if you're the Jewish expert in the story and you're following the logic of the story, first comes a Jewish priest, next comes a Jewish Levite. Who should come next? And it's not a Jewish ambulance. It should be a Jewish worshiper. That's who should come next. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So you have a man in desperate need. We have no idea if he's a neighbor or not, i.e. Jewish or not. You have a priest pass by, then a Levite, and then we don't have a Jewish worshiper pass by. Rather, we have a... Samaritan. Of all the people Jesus could put in the story, he puts a Samaritan there. And the moment that he mentioned a Samaritan, the audience had to have gasped and said, what? Say it with me. What? That's what it was. Because Jews despised Samaritans. And they were perceived to have bred with those who weren't of the same race. They worshiped false gods. And a Samaritan in a Pharisee's eye would never, ever, ever, ever enter the kingdom of God. So if you're a Pharisee, you hate them. And Jesus just plopped one right in the middle of a great story. And in the Samaritan's eyes, or the eyes of the Pharisee, this low-grade level of a human being, what does he do? He shows the man in need a ton of compassion and he puts wine and oil and bandages on his wounds. And then he puts him on his own donkey, and he takes him to an inn where he takes care of him. And when you he, hear the word inn, don't think holiday inn. In the first century, Jews would take in neighbors into their own homes, i.e. Jews. Strangers would go to the inn. Samaritans, thieves, criminals, the unwed, young, pregnant Jewish girls, if there's room. So the Samaritan takes him to an inn, throws down two coins, tells the innkeeper, take care of him. Now Jesus is going to bring the story back to the question posed by the lawyer. So he concludes and he asks the expert in the law in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And in the most masterful way that only Jesus can do, he took a test given to him by an expert in the law and he turned it into a test for the lawyer. And both are raising the issue of neighbor but here's where you need to kind of see the wisdom of Jesus because in asking this question of the lawyer in verse 36, he provides a very, very important contrast that you have to understand if you want to know what the main idea is in this great story. Let me see if I can help us understand the contrast. In verse 25, you had the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That was his question. In other words, the lawyer believed he could look out at the world and decide whom he will love, with whom he will associate, who he will help, and whom he will serve. 
And that perspective looks outward and says, who qualifies to be my neighbor? Who's got the right look? Who has the right race? Who has the right political persuasion? Who has the right morality that fits with me? Because only that person has to be my neighbor. I only have to love the ones I want to love. I only have to have compassion toward those that I feel are deserving. I only have to care for or serve those with whom I'm comfortable and agreeable. That's the question of the lawyer. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus responded to that question. He told us that beautiful parable. And then he ended with his question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man in need? Do you see the difference between the two questions? Jesus' question turns the perspective inward. He's saying, which one acted like a neighbor to the man in need? Which one had compassion like a neighbor? Which one was compelled internally to go love a man in desperate need? Why is Jesus asking the lawyer this question? Because as you walked through early on, he's saying the one who acted like a neighbor, he's the one who knows God. He's the one who has eternal life. He's the one compelled by the love of God, the salvation of God through his life to go and love any in need. So which of the three was a neighbor to the man in need? The lawyer answers the question in verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus does not give this guy an inch. And he says, go and do likewise. He doesn't give this guy a break at all. Go and do likewise. Jesus isn't talking about something that's optional. He's teaching us that if you know God, if you've been saved by Christ, granted eternal life by God's grace through faith, you will love God with all of your being and you will love anyone in need. Let me give you a personal example. I began by telling you about my family trip to Vegas, walking the strip with uh, my wife and the girls. And If you've been to Vegas, the streets are packed with a lot of strange people. Lots of people in costume, lots of people in drag, lots of people, homeless beggars, lots of well-traveled folks standing around, walking around, lots of people handing out prostitute cards. It's Vegas. And I spent my entire time in Las Vegas avoiding them, protecting my girls from the riffraff of society, just making sure there's safe distance between me and them, like the priest, like the Levite, walking down the road. Well, one particular day, we're, we're back on that strip, and I'm ahead with two of my girls, and my wife calls to me from the back and says, hey, hon, uh, you guys go ahead. Addison, my oldest daughter, she wants to hop into the Walgreens right here. We'll catch up with you. I said, great. So off I went into my special op safety mode again. We walked down the strip. And about 10 minutes later, my wife and my daughter catch up to us, and Addison, my 13-year-old, has this plastic bag, and it's filled with stuff. And so I, I said, what's in the bag? And she said, oh, I bought a bunch of granola bar bars and dried fruits and nuts and stuff like that. And I said, are you hungry? She said, no. We keep passing by all these people. We're begging for food. So I went into Walgreens, and I pulled out my wallet, and I bought some food. And I just want to hand it to him, Dad, and just say, God loves you. She may as well have been the Holy Spirit herself, just piercing a heart. 
with deep conviction that a 42-year-old pastor would walk down the strip in Vegas doing everything he can to avoid, ignore, protect himself and his family from the strangers. And a 13-year-old girl early in her faith is acting like a what? A neighbor. She's being a neighbor. And I have no idea if any of those folks came to know Jesus by her actions. God knows that, not me. But I can say with humble integrity that my 13-year-old was doing a lot more kingdom good on the Vegas Strip than a 42-year-old pastor was. And I look back on those faces now with the words of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I just can feel God saying to me as I envision those people on the Strip, Craig, my son, I've asked you to go be a neighbor to them. And aside from whatever you perceive to be their godlessness, you are to be compelled to love people like that because you have tasted the gift of eternal life and the love of Christ in you. So men, the question on the table for you and for me this morning is this, are you a good neighbor? Or are you only willing to be a neighbor to certain people? Do you withhold being a loving neighbor to those you dislike? Do you avoid them because of their race, because of their sexual orientation? We're not going to engage them lovingly because we disagree with them morally, right? Or because of their political persuasion. I felt convicted, to be honest, and I'll share this just by way of a quick moment of, of confession. As Kelly was sharing his litigation cases and walking through the ACLU, and I forget the guy's name, the, the big antagonist guy that he says lives with his mom, uh, Jerry Weasel or something like that, whatever it was, but as he's sharing that, we're all doing this. We're clapping and he's going down. He's being defeated, right? Because he's the enemy. And driving up this morning, I was thinking, maybe a better response would be for all of us to drop on our knees and pray for that man in compassion and ask that God might grant him eternal life. And I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just shaming me. Do you engage people regardless of how you see them because you have a goal to want to share the love of Christ with them, and they're in great need. And it's not just to do social good, but ultimately it's to do gospel good. And are we living in such a way that God would look upon us and say, you're a good neighbor to those in need because you have received the gift of eternal life? Jesus called the lawyer, and he said, go and do likewise. And per the example of the Samaritan who had compassion, James says the exact same thing in his epistle in chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, right, the one that encapsulates all of them, love your neighbor as yourself, James says, you're doing right. You're doing right. Sunday, most likely, this homosexual couple will come and sit in the front row right next to me. I think they do it on purpose. And there's a part of me that struggles to go up and preach. There's a part of me for this story that says they need the gospel. And I'll let God be God over their journey and their story and how he works that all out. But my job is to help them bump into Jesus and let him do his work. So I want to say thanks for the privilege of sharing the word with you. 
And what I do know is this, you're going to leave this building, you're going to go on that mountain, and you're going to encounter a bunch of strangers. And then you're going to get on an airplane and go back to your cities and your communities and your neighborhoods and your workplaces, and they're going to be a bunch of strangers. And you got to wrestle with your own conviction around who you avoid and why. Because they have great need. So let's pray. Father, I believe it is true. The core of my being that no matter where we go, we just will never lock eyes with someone who doesn't <clears throat> matter deeply to you. And I confess so often that like the, fair, like the Levite and like the priest, I just walk on by because of some uncomfort in me, some distaste in me, some perceived, whatever it might be, there's a hang-up inside of my heart, and I'm qualifying who has the right to be my neighbor instead of listening to your word and acting like a neighbor. And so I pray for us as your sons that you would compel us to engage those, even if it makes us uncomfortable, not to validate what they're doing, but to give them the gospel that would change their eternity and transform their life on this earth. So today, might it be a good day that your men engage men and women on the slopes and at the restaurant and in the shops and in the village and take a step if they see someone in great need and let you be God. Thank you for the master storyteller. He's our Lord and our Savior because we have the gift of eternal life. Oh, by the power of your spirit, might we go be good neighbors today. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.